Elrod. There's Cornell. a national. There is evidently a national emergency that this uh, president has called today. First time since 9/11, I hear. And isn't he going golfing this weekend? Yeah, apparently there's a major crisis at the border today, but he's going So, you know, our federal government is scrambling to find emergency funds like they did on 9-11 for this quote-unquote border national security crisis that we have. To build a yes. wall that's going to take, what, probably years to build to deal with a crisis that is, according to Trump, is actually happening right now. Yeah, which according to a majority of Americans is not even close to being a crisis. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's well. This is how we're kicking off this President's a, Day weekend when he's playing golf. This is the upside down America we live in these days. Um, we have a super special guest with us today. We do, we do. Our friend uh, Soshi Hinojosa. That's right. That's who is right. the DNC communications director, one of the best strategists in the uh, party, mm-hmm. and uh, she's here today to talk us through several major announcements that the, DN- that the DNC has made this week. Uh, the first one was uh, on an agreement on data sharing that is uh, historic. And the second one is on the, um, uh, the qualifications that each in uh, criteria that the candidates are going to need to m- meet in order to qualify for uh, the debates. And also several of the media partners, I think, as well. And lastly, we also have the DNC winter meeting going on as we speak in D.C. So, Soshi, thank you so much for joining us on The Electables. Welcome, Soch. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks for being here. Congrats on your podcast. Thank you. We're we're on Spotify now, which is a huge breakthrough for us, so we're very excited. Hopefully that means iTunes will pick us up very soon. Spotify uh, and um, and Google Play. That's fantastic. And uh, f- we also have a uh, Twitter handle, The Electables. So hopefully people will follow us. And SoundCloud. We also are up there as well. So, um, but Sochi, thank you so much for for joining us. And uh, I'll just kick us off. Do you, could you just go into more detail about this uh, data sharing agreement that you that uh, that uh, Chairman Perez announced this week? Of course. So what I'll do is take a step back a little bit um, and give you some context around this. Um, As you know, because the two of you were front and center in the 2016 election, none of us expected Donald Trump to win. This was a huge surprise to the entire country. But afterwards, what we realized is while Hillary Clinton had a great operation in all 50 states, in Florida, um, in in battleground states, um, in Nevada, um, in other places, what we learned and sort of what we underestimated was the ground game around Donald Trump. And a lot of people could see his campaign as a total disaster. They saw this as something, you know, he was not prepared to be the nominee. He was someone who was making headlines in scandal. But everyone would say he doesn't have a ground game. There's no way that he has organizers in Florida. And what we learned was that the Republican Party had was had that ground game for him. And what they had done during eight years of President Obama's um, while he was in office was that they built a data infrastructure in order to share information with other campaigns, with candidates, with outside groups. And what happened was that any time a group were to talk to a Republican voter or a voter 
um, in a battleground state, they would share that information with not only the Republican Party, but with with the Republican campaigns in states and um, state parties. And so Donald Trump inherited all of that. He inherited a data infrastructure, and he knew more about the voter than we did. And that's how he won. And so we learned about this and really studied it over the last year, especially as Tom Perez has been chair, and realized we need to do the same thing. And so what we have done is we have created this data infrastructure to where we can now share data in real time with campaigns, with potentially presidential campaigns, labor, outside groups, state parties, and all come together so we know more about the voter, um, which is unprecedented and something that has been tried for several cycles now. So we're really excited about this. I think that this now puts our nominee in a great position in order to beat Donald Trump, and this is exactly what we needed to do that. And I got to tell you, I um, have been working a lot with you guys over the DNC, um, and it's been fantastic to see Tom Perez really take this on. You know, it may seem like, you know, to borrow a phrase from our dear friend Robbie Mook, <laughs> uh, quote unquote, Captain Obvious, that um, the DNC would have would have had something like this in place for years. Um, can you kind of go through a little bit like, you know, perhaps why it took so long to get to this point and some of the, you know, past situations, if you will, that have not allowed the DNC to be able to have this infrastructure, data infrastructure that we hope will ultimately rival what the Republicans have had in place for a while. Of course. Now, President Obama did have a great data infrastructure. That's how he won. He won Mm -hmm. two elections. Um, He was an amazing president. Um, But what was happening was that we weren't transferring that to the state parties and we weren't necessarily able to share in real time. Right. And so this is how, why this is different. And it took some time because change is hard and state parties, they don't, they want to share their data, but their data is also theirs. And it is something that is extremely important to them that they build over time. They put a lot of work and money into it. Mm -hmm. And so we came together and talked to them about how this would benefit them and candidates and the overall party. And so I think we were able, it took a long time because again, change isn't easy. And so we were able to come up with an infrastructure that not only protects state parties and their data, but it also allows them to access data and share what they want to share. Um, It is not mandatory, but it is something that we can all get behind and work together to make sure that our candidates are getting what they need. And I just have a quick follow-up to that, I mean, or really a point to make, which is good data is important for all the listeners out there because walk lists don't just come out of nowhere. Call lists don't come out of nowhere. I'm sure a lot of you listening to this have volunteered your time or even worked on campaigns where you're making phone calls, you're knocking on doors. And if you have inaccurate lists, if you don't have the right kind of data in front of you, and you're rock- knocking on the wrong doors, or even worse, you're calling a bunch of Republicans, it's very, very frustrating. It's a waste of your time as a campaign volunteer, as a campaign staffer. Can you kind of give us a few more examples, Sochi, of how really good data can help the ultimate nominee for the presidency? Absolutely. I think that if you're looking at a battleground state specifically, um, and let's take Florida, for example, I think that we, and on the Clinton campaign, felt like we knew voters, right? But there mm-hmm. were voters, obviously, that were out there that weren't necessarily um, being either direct or we just didn't know 
enough information about them, where you had the Trump campaign and Republicans that knew every aspect of a voter. Which, by the way, they inherited from the RNC. They weren't exactly putting this data together themselves. Exactly. But the nominee for, if it was Rubio, if it was Cruz, whomever it was going to be, it was going to inherit this really fantastic data infrastructure from the RNC. Exactly. And it's also getting information in real time. And that's what's important. Because Frankly, the data data from 2016 by now is old. Yep. It's old data. The the voters, they are changing their minds, you know, what they thought about in 2016, their addresses, any sort of contact information, that stuff is now outdated. What needs to happen and why this is so critical is because there are there we have a democratic ecosystem and our democratic ecosystem is huge. It is a lot larger than the Republican ecosystem. If mm-hmm. you put outside groups and labor and, you know, Planned Parenthood and all of these groups, everyone that who is fighting for Democrats, just take that. There are a lot more people fighting for Democrats than Republicans, right? right? But the only way that we all benefit from it is if we put in information in real time. And so this is why this is so important is because we need to know what a voter is thinking about next month, in two months, in three months, you know, even information in a week will be different than two weeks ago. So that is what is so great about this. That's right. And Howard Dean is the chairman of the uh, of this new initiative. Is that correct? Exactly. Howard Dean knows a little bit about state parties. <laughs> he was um, obviously the um, chair that brought us the 50-state strategy. He understands the importance of data sharing and our state parties and, and infrastructure in some of these states and how states work. And so he will be critical because he understands exactly how you organize and how you use data effectively in order to win. So we're in in the process of, or the DNC, I should say, is in the process of building this exchange. There will be an exchange that will be outside of the DNC that will legally, you know, be able to exchange data in real time. and, And all of the data will go into that organization. And all of the candidates running for president would have access to it? They can join that. Yeah. And then other candidates as well. Other other candidates and incumbents can have access to it as well. Exactly. Other candidates, other state parties, they everyone who, who wants to join in, as long as you are working for the Democratic ecosystem, you can. And that's something that Tom Perez really stressed um, you know, in some of his interviews in the last few days, which is, hey, this doesn't just help presidential candidates. This helps people who are running for down-ballot races. So it's a good thing across the board, and it really puts Democrats in a much better advantage. Absolutely. So should we fast forward to the debates? Yeah. Oh, I can't believe we're already talking about primary debates. It's crazy. Because I hurt your stomach a little um, bit. I, I mean, <laughs> makes me nauseous. Uh, but we are, and uh, we've we the DNC has made uh, made an announcement earlier uh, about the number I believe the number of debates that you were going to uh, sponsor and then this week you made an announcement on the uh, criteria that candidates would need to meet. Do you want to just go into that for our listeners? Absolutely. So we announced that we would have twelve debates, six in twenty nineteen, six in twenty twenty. This is double the amount that was announced in during the twenty sixteen cycle. And what we have learned over the last few cycles is that, you know, we are in the the position that Republicans were in in 2015, where they had tons of candidates. But the difference is Republicans, I don't know if you remember this, but they had 
sort of a JV and a varsity for their it was first humiliating. Debate. Exactly. Mike Huckabee, Carly Fiorina, Rick Santorum. Exactly. It was a little bit of a mess. And mm-hmm. we were trying to prevent that from happening. And what we heard is that a lot of Republicans felt that if they were on that JV stage, their candidacy was over. They were never going to make it to that varsity stage and no one was ever going to take them seriously. And so that we heard that loud and clear and we don't want that to happen to our candidates. And we want to make sure for the first two debates that everyone starts off at equal equal footing and that we have um, are including as many people as possible. So for the first two debates, what we are doing is we will have up to 20 candidates that can participate. We will look at polling. They need to poll at least at 1% in three polls. And then we're going to look at grassroots fundraising, which, as you know, there are a lot of candidates right now that have a lot of enthusiasm. And grassroots fundraising is a measure of that enthusiasm. And so we know that that is important to our party. We know that grassroots fundraising is important in order to beat Donald Trump. And that's why we're taking it so seriously. So we'll have up to 20 candidates. We will do two consecutive nights on primetime television. And then we will go ahead and pull names, you know, out of a hat at random when it comes to which night everybody gets. So So it's 10 per night. 10 per night, up to 10 per night. And then it would be selected at random. So you wouldn't necessarily have your top 10 people polling well in Iowa on one stage and everyone else on another. It would be at random. That way everyone is on a level playing field and they can share their ideas equally and so that their supporters also feel like they got a fair shot and were able to do that. And you're and when you say polling at 1%, do you mean 1% nationally or are we looking at uh, state polls as well? We are looking at both. So you have to poll at 1% in at least three polls, nationally and locally. We made the list public. Some of them, some of the polls are in are the four, first four early states, which we know are extremely important to some candidates, and they've already been campaigning there. You've seen people go to Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and Nevada. And so um, those are the those are the two. That's the two criteria. And for the second debate, we wanted to make sure that you have another opportunity to make your case again, right? And so that will we have these two stages both in June and July, and then after that, we'll pick up the debates back in September, and we'll have a different criteria for that. And that's what I think, by the way, Soji, pertaining to the grassroots fundraising, I think it's so smart. Um, I'm reading the stat here. For the first debate, a candidate must receive donations from 65,000 people, and those donations must come from people in at least 20 different states. Very, very smart. That was a really smart idea because, to your point, it allows some of these, you know, billionaire self-funders um, i.e. Michael Bloomberg, if he were to run. Um, you don't have to comment specifically on, on particular <laughs> candidates. I know that that's not your job, but I I, I can. Um, you know, it forces them to go out and, you know, outside their, maybe their comfort zone and raise some money from, um, from grassroots donors. So I think it's very important. It's something that Bernie did very effectively in 2016, um, as we know from both working on Hillary Clinton's campaign, but it's something that really shows energy and enthusiasm, and I think it's important across the board. Um, so going to, so I know that this is the criteria that we have for the first two debates, or for the first debate. Is this also the criteria that we have for the second debate too, or is that still being decided? That absolutely, it is the criteria for the second debate. And I also want to point out what is unprecedented. Not only the grassroots fundraising aspect of this is unprecedented, but it is unprecedented, especially for the first debate, to have 
network cable and a Spanish language outlet give us two consecutive nights of prime time in order to showcase our candidates. If I were Republicans, I'd be jealous. I'm surprised that Donald Trump hasn't tweeted about this yet because you know how much he cares about television. And the fact that NBC is giving us two consecutive nights, they've never three different networks. On three different networks, that they've never done that for Republicans. So it is great for the Democratic Party that we are able to communicate directly with voters on prime time and it's it's it'll be extremely exciting and I can't wait to watch it. Do you guys have polling partners? I mean, are there certain polls you're going to be looking at? I mean, I would imagine you're probably not going to be using Rasmussen. Uh but do you have uh is it like the Des Moines Register poll? Rasmussen. It's whatever it is, it's not right uh polling. I'm just wondering. I've never really known the Rasmussen. answer to that. I hear, I hear about uh, uh, who, according, you know, I think Trump has a 65% approval rating with right now. But, yeah, so anyway, uh, Sochi, what is the... Why we're, why we're not using them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, yes, we are using several polls, and that is not a poll that we will be using this time around. But there are polls like ABC News, CNN, um, I know the Wall Street Journal. There are other national polls that um, n- several national media outlets do and they pull with you know consistently um we will also have folks like the des moines register right and the las vegas review journal so there will be as well as we'll sprinkle in some local polls and it gives you a wide variety of polls so that you have the opportunity to get at one percent we know that that is not easy remember if you have 20 candidates it's not easy getting to one percent in iowa right Right. it's not easy getting to one percent in any national poll. And so we are taking that into account. That's why we have the grassroots fundraising mechanism because we get that not everyone's going to meet 1%, but some but people might be really excited about one candidate and we don't want to leave that candidate out, right? So that's what, exactly what we're doing. I can't believe you're not using Breitbart News's polling whoever they use to poll to uh is a is a polling criteria for this. Steve um, Bannon. No comment. Steve Bannon, yeah, if Steve Bannon were to have his own polling company. Um, okay, so Soch, I want to get into, I just want to ask one more question about this. Um, and I think this is something that is probably going to come up even more as we get closer to this, um, which is what is to prevent somebody like, I don't know, who's like a disruptor, like a Sasha Baron Cohen or, um, a, 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 you know, somebody of that ilk from deciding, you know what, hey, I want to be on this debate stage. I'm going to, you know, create a petition drive and a campaign, and I'm going to tell people, you know, to make sure that my name is is mentioned in polls so I can reach that 1% threshold or I can show that I can in, in a, you know, three polls. What is to prevent somebody like that from, from getting in? I know you have to be in good standing with the Democratic Party, or I think it's however you guys phrase that, but could you maybe talk a little bit about that, or is that something that may end up happening? That would be really hard to do. I would say you would need an infrastructure uh, to build an infrastructure from scratch in in these states, have a presence, have offices, really spend some serious money um, in the first four early states specifically, but then also nationally. Right. And I think that that is something, if you just have money to play around with, I mean, I wish I did, but if, if anyone has just money. Nice to, waste of money. Exactly. To throw out there, it would still be difficult to do that. And so we, you have to be a bona fide candidate under the DNC. Um, and, and what does that mean exactly? And that just means that you need to be nationally recognized, an elected official, 
um, and recognized by the Democratic Party. And right. so that, you know, if you are a former governor or elected official or a member of Congress of some sort, then that means that you would be a bona fide candidate. Now, the DNC can make that determination, and that's something that we will look like at and look at every case um, and separately, but it would be very difficult to try to play the rules and just get in to make a statement. We want serious candidates, and we want people who are actually going to invest in the Democratic Party and um, in- invest in the future of the Democratic Party, and so that's what we're looking for. So somebody couldn't run, like Doug Thornell couldn't, Run his dog. Hey, wait a minute. Well, Sammy couldn't run. Sam hey, could be Doug, serious. you should get in. Come on. Yeah, that, that could be fun. <laughs> you or your dog, Sammy. <laughs> Sam would be great. Oh. Sam would be great. Yeah. So, uh, one question, one last question from me. Tell us about this winter meeting. What's going on? What What's on the agenda? Any presidential candidates come in? We don't have presidential candidates coming in at this winter meeting. My guess is that you will probably see them at the next meeting because that's the last meeting before all of the chaos in the primary. When the is that? Is that will be in August. And so my guess is you will have a lot of presidentials try to go to that meeting. But what for this meeting specifically, we're just getting, we're finalizing everything for the 2020 process. Um, and that is our rules, the schedule, and any last-minute things that we need to do. That's why we had the data announcement this week. We were able to get all of our state party chairs into one room and really discuss the importance of sharing data, and they took a vote and overwhelmingly voted for this, which is fantastic. We also have Stacey Abrams speaking at our Woo-hoo! meeting. She is a star, as you know, and so we love that she is part of the Democratic Party. She obviously has a very optimistic message. I don't know if the two of you saw her State of the Union response, but of course. what great contrast to Donald Trump, right? And so it will be um, – she just has a fantastic message. So we will have her there. We're really excited about that. We had Nancy Pelosi speak at our event on Wednesday. Um, she is a kick-ass speaker. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed. To yes, you are on a podcast. We say, we say a lot of bad words, um, good words. So bad. she was there as well, and that's basically what the business is this week. Um, we are we'll wrap up on Saturday. I know that Al Sharpton will be speaking as well as a number of state party leaders. Wonderful. Well, I don't think – do you have anything else add, to add, Sochi? Anything no, I'm so else glad that, that you guys are doing this. People this should know about This is a great podcast, and everyone should stay tuned because we will have some convention news soon on, on the location of where we're going to have the 2020 convention, um, and then as well as a, another debate schedule for the rest of the debates. So. Look at Sochi te- teasing that out. Come on. I, I, I need to know now. You want to make now. some news on your podcast? Yeah, Why don't you make some Come news? On. What does the city, what's the first letter of the city? Of the, uh... <laughs> well, there remind are... us the three, the three finalists are. <laughs> the three finalists are um, Miami, Milwaukee, and Houston. And they're all in the running and we have not made a decision. Um, so I know but... you can't say this, but maybe, but Elrod and I can. So Elrod, <laughs> where would you like to go? For the convention. Well, I'm going to do the process of elimination here. I cannot imagine being in Houston in the summertime. Okay, then Milwaukee um, and Miami. And M- Miami, I don't know. Like, is there going to be a hurricane? Are there going to be storms? And it's it would be really hot down there then. But it is okay. Miami. And Milwaukee, I mean, we've got some, like, you know, some, some work to do in Wisconsin. So That's true. That's true. Milwaukee's a fun. I wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't mind Milwaukee. Milwaukee's a fun little town. I like it. Yeah. So they would be great, all of them. All Thank you so much. Staff. Thank you so much this for having me. This has been fantastic. A lot, of, a lot of really important things that the DNC is doing. And as a former veteran of the building, it's great to hear. 
And best of luck, and always, you. you're always welcome here. Thanks so much. Thank you so too. And for Adrian Elrod, this is Doug Thornell. This has been The Electables, and we'll see you next time.